That's part of the idea that the, the violin is so much like a voice, I think, and it's close, so close. And I think why people get shy about playing, because it's really, you know, just the same exact reason that people get shy about singing, because it's, you can't hide anything. You know, it's all just coming out of you. And every violin sounds exactly like the person playing it. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm your host, Joe McHugh, and I've been traveling with my wife Paula to meet with musicians, violin makers, and others whose lives have been enchanted by their relationships with the violin, viola, cello, and bass. Back in 2015, I was asked to emcee one of the concert stages at the Wintergrass Music Festival in Bellevue, Washington. And while there, I had the good fortune to meet and talk with violinist extraordinaire Daryl Anger. Drawing upon his knowledge of classical, folk, and jazz music, Daryl has been a key figure in the evolution of violin music in the world today. He co-founded both the David Grisman Quintet and the Turtle Island Quartet. At present, he leads the group Republic of Strings and teaches violin at the Berklee School of Music in Boston. Here's a sample of his innovative approach to playing the violin, in this case musically reimagining the well-known folk melody about that steel-driving man, John Henry. I began my interview with Daryl asking for what I called his creation myth. In other words, what family and cultural influences played a part in making him a fiddler. Any music that happened in my family was from my mother's side. And uh, those folks came out through Missouri and ended up in uh, eastern Oregon, Ontario, right across the river from Weezer, Idaho, which is total coincidence because... Uh, time I'm talking about there was I don't there might not have even been a Weezer Idaho much less a grand national fiddle contest in Weezer so that was some interesting after the fact coincidence that was happening that may have had some effect you know forwards or backwards in time on something and most of the stuff that I found out about my family versus any music happened after I decided that I wanted to play music. 
But it turns out that my mother's side of the family, my great-grandfather was a fiddle player. He lived in Ontario, Oregon. They were the only couple for, you know, within 400 miles to get a divorce, he and his wife, <laughs> fiddlers. And uh, he also had a uh, brother-in-law who was a pretty good banjo player, apparently. And I've got a picture of those two sitting with their instruments uh, very formally. And probably the exposure probably took about a minute to do so. They were stuck there, you know, so they look like they're carved in stone, you know, that, that look, you know, that people have during that time period. And uh, that was pretty cool. I had already been playing the fiddle for eight or nine years when my grandmother saw fit to show me that stuff. That was great. And my grandmother was the only seriously musical person in the family, and she lived with our family for most of the time that I was a kid, and uh, she played the piano. It turns out that her first husband, and she was married three times, widowed three times, and she finally gave up. She figured she was a jinx. But that first husband of hers was a very enthusiastic musician and played everything, saxophone, violin, a couple other things, and, and she was a piano player. So they had, for about a year and a half, they had a very idyllic musical existence together as husband and wife until he caught tuberculosis, actually, and uh, died pretty quickly. But I think there was probably some subtle encouragement pressure coming from my grandmother to get into music. I just remember the original impetus coming from the Beatles, actually. I'm, at, I'm in that generation that, you know, when those guys came on, that was like a tidal wave. That was a ton of bricks landing on everybody, and it affected a lot of people in different ways. But for me, it made me want to take up the guitar, grow my hair long, and be George Harrison, basically. That's what I wanted to do. And that lasted a couple of years. My folks bought me a guitar, which was physically unplayable. And I tried, I even bought those plastic finger picks and put them on my left hand, trying to get the, the strings to press down the strings with my, <laughs> my left hand. And of course, I was taking lessons at the time. I probably would have gone on doing that, but uh, my teacher said, no, you can't do that. That's not allowed. And uh, I believed him. I don't know. I was the kid. He was the grown-up. So, uh, <laughs> you know, now we see videos of people playing in guitar in their laps, you know, just all different ways. You know, it probably could have worked, actually. Could have been the first slide guitar player with, like, four slides on the ends of his fingers. But what happened, basically, is we had a friend of the family who had a violin, and she donated the violin to the cause and all of a sudden we were we had this nice violin in the family and uh yeah i remember being at a restaurant with my folks actually and uh i must have been about 9 or 10 something like that and uh this violin player was strolling tables he was walking around and playing you know hits of the day stuff from the great american songbook musical comedy stuff and i just you know, he looked like he was having a great time. He was smiling, you know, he was playing great. And I said, wow, that looks a lot easier than guitar. <laughs> I'll play that. <laughs> that was my second mistake, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, so the violin, you know, uh, I was not aware of that there was really any other kind of music 
besides classical music. And in those days, this was early 60s, any kind of violin pedagogy organized was organized under the rubric of Western European ethnic music, meaning classical, of course. So they kind of, the Beatles were just a separate universe that I never connected with, with the violin at all. I just, uh, succession of uh, teachers who, you know, some good, some terrible. Certainly, you know, I was the reverse beneficiary of the, the, the diaspora of artists from Western Europe who had come over in the wake of both wars, really, which had destroyed people's families and destroyed their community, destroyed their world. And a lot of those people were psychologically damaged in a very understandable way. But to inflict those people's attitudes on little kids in America was possibly not the best thing for the state of, of violin playing and in general classical music or the arts in any field. And uh, I had a couple of folks like that, although I did have one really good teacher early on who was a very pleasant person to be around and uh, was a great player. And I think that, that kind of what kept me interested in the instrument. I just knew I kind of wanted to play music and the violin was there and I sort of did it in spite of what I was being taught, you know. I played the violin for years, and yet I often struggle to find a comfortable way of playing it. I asked Daryl to share his thoughts about the physical challenges that come with playing the violin. Well, the violin or the fiddle or whatever it is that we're playing is definitely one of the more odd instruments. The, just the position that you have to, you get into, you know, to play the instrument is so odd. You know, you don't go around with your arms all akimbo and funny at any other time. You know, it's like it's, in a way, it can feel like the most natural thing in the world, but it's just, you would never think to put your arms in that position in any other situation. It's really interesting like that. And of course, the instrument's above your heart, so your hands are above your heart. There's like a circulation thing. There's all kinds of, you know, your your back is sort of like a, it's it's a, girder, you know, it's, it's like, uh, everything is like, it's out, you know, there's all this leverage stuff that's happening. And it's really interesting just 
you know, you could probably like trace the history of how that's been played. People were playing it on their arms, lira di braccio, the, um, the arm violin, and of course the rebecks and all those skin instruments that are held in all different ways, you know, just whatever. And part of the history there is that people were playing those things upright, like viols were all played cello style, and then somehow the dancing masters or the people that were like teaching dancing actually started putting it under their chin because they needed to be able to walk around and coach people on what they're dancing. And it was considered, of course, low class because dancing is, is not uh, what cultured, educated people are doing. The cultured, educated people are making deals while the musicians are playing in the back. So there's all that, those layers. But fiddle is just one of those instruments that starts out hard, you know, kind of difficult, and it stays hard. It's no matter what you do. It's just going to be, you know, anything, any new technique or anything you new you try to do, it's just going to be, there's going to be a curve, a fairly steep learning curve, as we say now. So people really have a relationship with an instrument that I think it's a humbling relationship. Um, and you see that, you know, the instrument itself is, is right up next to your face, right? It's in your face. You hear every little thing, every imperfection, every problem all the time. And there's no getting away from that. And, you, and just the, the best violinists, people like Isaac Perlman, you know, people will say, well, I, yeah, I suck, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm, I, I can't, you know, I can't play, I can't really, you know. Anybody with any kind of sense of reality about themselves, it's just a very humbling experience to play the violin, I think, for anybody who's not insane a little bit. You know, so everybody sucks on fiddle, <laughs> basically. You know? No matter how good you are, you hear everything. You hear all the imperfections. So that's great, I think. As we go forward, it's just a continual reminder of uh, our weaknesses, our imperfections, fed back to us in real time. And that's, that's good because mixed with that is a perception that for most of these, these players, we've dedicated years of our lives to this. That means that we've developed habits of focus and dedication and determination and all these very desirable traits. Just, I'm not going to give up on this thing. I'm just going to keep trying on this stuff. And the amount of attention and focus you have to pay just to even get a sound out of the thing. And that's what I tell beginning students or if I go into a, like a school orchestra or something like that and these kids are like, they're, you know, half of them don't even know why they're there. They haven't woken up to the instrument yet, but they're doing it because for whatever reason, either their parents want them to or they, they need to be doing something. And I just remind them, you know, like, well, we are part of a very special tribe of people who are developing or have developed or have this ability to focus, be determined, and kind of a little obsessive. But these are traits that work in, in any field, really, you know, just because in order to do anything, you gotta focus and, and keep trying.
I like what you're saying about that. I had never quite thought about it in terms of uh, the skills. Because mm-hmm. uh, there is the other side, the disreputable, the, the cotton-eyed joke. Oh, yeah, yeah. The enchanter yeah. of women. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah. and whatever comes with that territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything you want to say about that? Yeah, just that endless ribbon of, of sound that can come out of a fiddle when it's played right. It's, it is magical. And it just connects, I think, to just everything about the people are learning about meditation and that, that place of being in the moment. And that's really common. Any musician, any kind of music is that. really is a meditation. The same way that we, you know, as meditators, uh, you know, in the Buddhist tradition or any tradition, focus on the breath. Focus on the breath. Going in, breath goes in, breath goes out. Focus on that. You're in time. You're in, in that moment-to-moment constantly being aware of the moment, which puts you in kind of an infinite place, you know, really, because each moment is endlessly becoming the next moment, and that's a great place to be. It's where animals, I mean, if you think about anything good about being an animal, it would be that endless moment-to-moment inhabiting the present fully. And with the violin, that is... You can't just hit a note and then let it play out by itself. You have to keep at it. You have to continually maintain the note. And you go from the frog, one end of the bow, to the other end of the bow. It's totally breathing. It's a breathing exercise. You're focusing on the breath. There's a continuous application of balance and force and pressure. Speed always changing, moment to moment, always being manipulated, changed, letting that move, you know, and that is one of the greatest meditations I've ever experienced. Tell me what you think of the bow, because I played fiddle for many years, and I was always thinking about getting a better fiddle, mm-hmm. you know, getting the fiddle that had just the tone I wanted, and then suddenly the scales fell from my eyes when I realized, <laughs> hey, I should be thinking about the bow, and that became a whole a different journey. It's about the bow. Yeah, now isn't that interesting too because, you know, the whole idea of subject-object just applying the right hand to the, you know, the left hand if we're right-handed. Um, and I know many left-handed fiddle players who play right-handed because it's very difficult to get somebody to make you a left-handed fiddle. Although I do know a couple of people. But yeah, the bow is definitely, well, it's, yeah, it's your magic wand that everything goes into that. And, and that's, you know, that's the con- conventional wisdom, which happens to be true. And you hear it, you know, say, oh, yeah, well, you know, you don't really, you know, you don't really want to fiddle, you know, you want, you don't want to battle fiddle. You want, the, the bow is the most important thing. And I kind of think they both help each other. <laughs> you know, they, they definitely, you can't have one without the other, and, and the better each one is, and it's great. And I've had some really great bows, and I've loved it. And I'm kind of at the point where it doesn't really matter that much whether I get a decent bow or a great bow. And that's a good feeling, too, because you want a bow that kind of can show you what's possible. And once you've kind of figured that out, then you can kind of persuade. I mean, you can't really work with a bad bow. There's plenty of bad bows out there. Fewer and fewer because they usually get broken or or discarded or tossed aside or lost. But once you've 
being able to kind of mold yourself to the idea of what, what a bow can do. And again, you know, it's really great. If you get a experience a great instrument or a great bow, that will help you make up the difference in what you're actually playing with your body, I think. But you kind of have to know what's possible. You know, it reminds me of this, I don't know if you know, Rachel Barton Pine, the great, great classical violinist. She's not even, she must be in her early 30s by now. She's very young. She's a redhead. She's dynamite. She's been through some very difficult life situations, and she is playing the most amazing classical violin. And she's a big metal fan. She likes to play heavy metal also on the violin. So, and she has really showed me the, the connection between very serious romantic virtuoso violin and heavy metal music in general. You know, it's, it's like kind of the same thing with opera, you know, opera and, and metal. But she is an unbelievable virtuoso. She does, regularly does concerts where she plays all 24 Paganini Caprices in one concert. You know, she just runs them down. <laughs> it's the most <laughs> amazing thing you ever heard. And she's great, and she has a violin, which is one of those $6 million Garnieris, which is not owned by her. It's uh, owned by some timber consortium from Brazil or something like that, you know, some large corporation which has it as an asset. But she is playing it. She gets to use it for as long as she wants if she pays the insurance premiums, which come to about $75,000 a year. And she let me play it. And uh, it was like if you've been playing plastic guitars all your life and somebody puts a D45, you know, a pre-war Martin D45 into your hands. And uh, it really was. It's like, oh, this is the only real violin in existence and everything else is a toy. This is the platonic violin. This is like the ideal, you know, we've all been in a cave playing these shadows and then all of a sudden, oh, this is the real thing with sunlight beating down on it and it's glowing and it's like does everything a violin is supposed to do pretty much by itself. You can wave your arms around it. And that was a great, great experience. And it really affected my ability to play a toy. I can actually, you know, if I, I have that image, I have that template in my mind and in my body now, it was shattering, you know, it's just something I'll never forget. And I can go a little bit farther playing the instrument I'm playing, and I have a really nice instrument. I mean, it's not, <laughs> It's, not, it's no slouch as an instrument. It's built by a very beautiful young maker, some, this guy who is just fantastic. His name is Nathaniel Rowan, who lives in New York, and uh, he spends most of the year building very high-end symphonic instruments that look exactly like Garnieri's and Stradivarius for, uh, for professional symphonic players who live in New York and work in New York. Uh, but a couple of times a year, he just likes to bust out a piece of art. And he uh, built this beautiful instrument that is his own design. It kind of, you know, from 350 yards away, it definitely looks like a violin. You get up close, the F-holes are different, the shape is a little different. But all the essential elements, the arching, uh, the size, it's all 
It's a fine violin. But he loves you know, to do crazy stuff. He, he's got racing stripes on some of them. He puts little squares of different colored poster paints on some of them. He, uh, I had one that I didn't like as much as the one I have now. I had it for about three months, almost bought it. That one had a life-size stencil in blue tempera of a uh, pair of scissors on the back, right? Right painted on the back of the instrument. And uh, so he, he called it, yeah, it's the blue snipper, man. Yeah. <laughs> and now I've got one with a big square red eyeball painted on the back. And so we call that HAL for HAL 9000, the, the uh, rogue computer in <laughs> 2001. So, um, and it's just an amazing instrument. It's beautiful. It's got five strings. I've got a, a viola string on there. So that's great. I do a lot of duet work with guitar players, and uh, it's just great to have you know the lower strings. If it's just me that's accompanying a guitar solo, it's just great to have a little lower range and being able to get down there. I've always been a little leery about the E string anyway. It's not my favorite sound. So I like having that extra string, but a viola, a full-size viola, I can't even deal with, and just physically because there's a thing that happens as the instruments get bigger, you know, your arms stretch out farther and, and where the sound comes out, it gets farther away. And as we talk about, you know, how it's like right up close to your face and it's there all the imperfections, but after a while that becomes a very intimate kind of endearing thing. You want to hear that thing coming out next year your face you know as you get better as you get more able to manipulate that it's very close to that other sound producing apparatus that you have built into your head you know <laughs> your throat and it's connected very closely to your throat it's touching you you know so this all this stuff is happening in a very intimate place it's really that's part of the idea that the, the violin is so much like a voice i think it's close so close and i think why people get shy about playing because it's really, you know, just the same exact reason that people get shy about singing because it's, you can't hide anything. You know, it's all just coming out of you. And every violin sounds exactly like the person playing it. You just can't, yeah, it's, it's pretty naked. And so, yeah, the thing about the viola is just it's, it's farther away and it's, it's kind of weird. So. In other ways, it's, I can't really put my finger on it, but it just, it's not that kind of cozy relationship that you can build with a violin. And, and so I like the five string because even though it might not have the same kind of stentorian quality on that low string that a viola might, you still have that. Um, you do have the low notes and it just sounds the way it sounds. And I love that. So anyway, so I've got this incredible violin by Nat Rowan, who is a young guy, and he's really on top of his game. And uh, if I break it, he can fix it, um, <laughs> which is great. I'm a little rough on instruments. But that just having that that template, and, and you know, that, when stuff is that intense, it gets into your body. You, you don't just, you know, you don't remember it with your brain you remember it with other parts of your body too and of course that's the whole ens essence of playing an instrument isn't it you know you really have to get everything 
into your body. You can't be thinking while you're playing. You have to do all your thinking in the in the prep work previous to the actual performance of the uh, the uh, music, previous to the actual experience of making the music. Some people have been saying, I think they're right, that violin making is in a golden age. There's so many people making yeah. it. There's so much shared information. And what somebody said I really liked uh, was uh, Stradivarius didn't make old violins. He made new violins. And yet there seems to be this genius in, in some of those instruments. That was your direct experience of it. Any yeah. idea what, what, what they tapped into to do that? Well, I spent a lot of time with my friend John Cooper, Jonathan Cooper, who's also a great violin maker and one of the most interesting people you'll ever meet. He's from a whole family of like professionally interesting people. You know, his brother's an international journalist and he's got lawyers and just fantastic, fascinating people all through his family. And he is really one of my favorite guys to hang out with because he really talks about all this stuff. He spent time in Cremona studying. He He's kind of like a CSI guy on old instruments, and he's got a lot of fascinating ideas about how these guys actually built these things. And there's things that he does not subscribe to, the idea that there's some kind of magical varnish formula. All this stuff is kind of, you know, he just thinks it was kind of bullhorky, but it's great fodder for the next newspaper article about old instruments and to get that price up, you know, on the old stuff. But I think, you know, I agree with him. I think the best instruments are being built today. His main thought, I think, and you should really talk to John because he's here uh, at the at the uh, festival. John's main thought about this, and the one that makes the most sense for me, is that you know, these old violins, these fine violins, they started out good. They started out new. Those guys were getting decent prices for them. You know, everybody knew, oh, yeah, Stradivari, yeah, he's like, yeah, he's, he's good, yeah, yeah. Especially if you want kind of a loud one. So these things get played, they get broken, they get fixed, they get tweaked, they get adjusted. And because they're being played all the time, people are having them, the action's fixed, and the, you know, they fix the neck if it drops, you know, and the bridge is replaced all the time, and they get broken again, and then they get fixed, and the instrument adjusts itself to that, and they loosen up a little bit from having all the cracks, you know, all the, any tension in the instrument finally is released because the cracks are the, where if there's like difficulty or tension, that's where it's going to show up. These things over centuries, they just get tweaked to within an inch of their lives. They're like the most highly adjusted apparatus on the planet. They're like just the most perfected objects that you can get. People have sweated over these things for 200, 300 years. So of course they're going to be great. Of course they're going to sound great. You know, all the varnish is worn off. They're just, they've been used for so long. So that's a big part of it, I think, is that they've just been cared for. Let me ask you this question. We're sitting here in a, in a motel room, or hotel room, quite a nice hotel yeah. room. And this is a more high-end hotel, and yet I can hear everything going on out there on the mm. street and the buses and the doors slamming. <laughs> this is a really noisy world. Yeah. I'm noticing. And it seems like everything we come up with just creates more noise to add to it. And yet, you, you when you play the violin, the space you play it in, you were talking about the violin being so close under mm -hmm. your chin, and of course you hear it one way, somebody five feet away hears it differently. 
So anything you want to say about the acoustic spaces or do mm-hmm. you what efforts you take to create acoustic spaces that allow this music to to re, to become what it could be? Yeah. Well, I think most you know many musicians and certainly most violin players are have become lifetime connoisseurs of stairwells you know we all have our favorite stairwell you know places all over the world and, and bathrooms you know those highly reflective spaces they can really it's just such a pleasure to get in there and have that note go on and on and on because you know like we were talking about you kind of have to maintain you have to make that note happen but then if you get to stop and have that note come back to you and of course, with the instruments like that, you're really playing kind of one note or at the most two notes at a time. And for the just the context of like what your harmony is and everything like that, it's just great to have some some reverb, you know. And so, yeah, those acoustic spaces. Now, I think we've gone through a huge change in the way we produce music on most instruments, certainly on the violin, we still have very tiny minority of fine, fine players who are still playing these things in a room and people listening from anywhere from like 10 to 350 feet away. And that's a whole method of tone production on the instrument that is still, this whole method of, of making the sound on the instrument that that is still worked on. It's a highly mannered and very difficult and complicated way of, of making sure that instrument is heard. And it's certainly, it's the, uh, it's the way that, that instruments were heard for thousands of years. But now, there's a whole different way that we hear these instruments. We hear them through microphones, or we hear them through pickups. And I think you have a whole different kind of aesthetic with regard to what instrument you want an instrument to sound like, you know, if you're playing through a microphone, certainly. Because the audience is hearing those instruments from up close. It's like movie acting versus stage acting, kind of. Kenneth Branagh is one of my favorite actors because he can do Shakespeare for movies, and his range goes from from zero to 90, whereas a stage actor has to go from about 70 to 90. And I'm talking about range of volume and range of expression. We have an added range of expression when we're playing in the microphones, and to some extent through pickups, although pickups are a horrible filter that, that remove a lot of musical content. But the microphone can pick up a whisper, it can pick up something very intimate, and if you back off a little bit, it can pick up all the loud stuff too. So that's a whole different thing, and you want a different sounding instrument for that, I think, you know, because when we talk about projection, we talk about brilliance, we talk about brightness, we talk about the sound of the hair on the string, you know, that bright, brilliant stuff, it'll drive you crazy if you play it too long, because it's just so extremely, it's the high frequencies that need to get to the listener's ear from a long distance. You don't necessarily want those high frequencies translated through a microphone. It just sounds like crackling, crunching, dental drill, just the most, just, ah, you know. (laughs) Yeah, being just attacked by, you know, many, many small fingernails. So... That's a really interesting thing, you know, with the choices people are making about the tone of their instruments. 
based on whether they're playing through a microphone. Certainly it's affected me. Uh, I have a couple of different ways I like to do it. I play into a, a normal microphone. When I'm recording, I like a really high quality microphone that may be a little bit off axis from the instrument. I like to play close to a microphone so that I can be, uh, can get a confiding, intimate sound if I want. I have a clip-on microphone that actually goes on the instrument, you know, physically on the instrument, and that's great because I can move around. It's sort of like back to being an acoustic musician in a way because it doesn't matter, you know, whether I, you know, if I don't have to stand perfectly still, if I want a certain sound, I could just move around. The instrument's always going to sound the same, whether I'm bending over or walking or twirling or like lying on my back or whatever, it's going to be the same. So in that sense, you know, you give up something with a microphone. Microphones do not reproduce everything that we hear with our ears. But you also give something up when you're playing acoustically because if people are like 10 feet away, they're not hearing stuff that you're hearing. And it just goes all the way back, all the way, all the way out. You lose more and more in an acoustic situation. So we make it up by like playing in beautiful rooms with lots of uh, echo, reverb, so that, that stuff all blends together. In fact, I gave a talk at the Violin Maker Society about five years ago saying, can you guys make some really fine instruments that are not as bright? Can you guys do some stuff that like might have like more of like a, a fullness, you know, something that would sound great in a microphone? That would really pick up a lot of the uh, that all you know all that you kind of rejigger all the components of a violin sound to uh, emphasize like maybe the lower parts of the the frequency or the more mellow parts as an option. Obviously, we're not going to give up 400, 500, 1,000 years of playing acoustically in rooms. That's still a great thing, and there's no substitute for that. But there's an additional thing that happens where larger situations where People need to hear it louder in order to feel involved in the experience. Certainly these, you know, like a big noisy room or a situation where people are, might be dancing, if it's just all the sound, if the sound of the music is drowned out by the sound of people stomping their feet or talking or, or just the, everything that's happening in the world, traffic noise, all that stuff, airplanes going overhead, you need something that's going to, to some extent, obliterate that. But if it's as bright as you need a violin to be in a room like Carnegie Hall in order to hear the back, for people in the back room to hear that, it's going to be painful. There comes a time when musicians begin to think about the musicians who will come after them. I asked Daryl to talk about teaching, and he also talked about what he's learned from playing in ensembles. You know, I've been doing so much education lately. Most artists, I think, they they kind of hit a point where there's kind of a tipping place where they go from mostly accumulation and just collecting their experiences and and cycling through that part to a point of sharing their thoughts and trying to organize what they've gleaned out of their experience of art or whatever, to make that in some kind of form that, that they can communicate, kind of expand the culture or just keep things going or just 
Yeah, it's uh, reaping and sowing and all that stuff. Just uh, people try to preserve their stuff in different ways. We've got mechanical and electronic reproduction, but they all, we also have, and this has been going on for all time, all the time that humans have been alive, is uh, you reproduce your experience through new people. If you figure out something, you try to pass it on, give people a place to stand that they can get a little bit up up the uh, path. And so that happened for me. That started happening, ooh, man. Well, I started teaching at Mark O'Connor's fiddle camps. That was in like 1995 uh, or something like that. So I've been doing that a while. Now I'm a professor at Berkeley College of Music. That's, a, that's my first day job since I had a job washing dishes in college you know, <laughs> that I dropped out of. <laughs> to play in pizza parlors. So um, that's really, you know, at this point I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to communicate some of these things that I've learned that you absorb stuff almost through your skin, you know, just knowledge about what you're doing, how you're doing it. Is it useful to organize this stuff into a way that might be more easily digestible to, to a new player? Possibly. Possibly not, and everybody's different that way. You know, certainly the kind of person that would like enroll in a music school like Berkeley is going to be a different kind of person from somebody like the kind of person that I was, who would never. You know, as I've always had difficulty even thinking about the idea of having a, like an actual teacher, somebody like a mentor, somebody. Well, I've had mentors, but we weren't in a teaching situation. We were actually it was an earn while you learn. I'd get in somebody's band. And I'd, we'd work, and <laughs> I'd try stuff, and sometimes, a lot of times, it wouldn't work, and it just, I'd have to figure out a way to fix things myself. And uh, certainly, playing with David Grisman and Tony Rice, as far as my approach to rhythm and ensemble work, I'd say being in the last chair of the second violins of my school orchestra had a huge effect on the way I play in an ensemble. Somebody might perceive that as like being sort of a failed classical musician if you're playing last chair, second violin. But you learn about inner parts, you learn about textures, you learn about all kinds of things that, that uh, support whatever's supposed to be in front at any particular time in a musical situation. So I thought that was, that was super valuable for me. I've never been, well, lately, last five years, I've been a little bit more enthusiastic soloist, but I'm always more interested in the ensemble, what's going on. Uh, texturally in the group and trying to contribute to that and rhythmically you know I've always been a rhythm guy so I was watching you do that little tapping thing with your bow yeah that's yeah. Nice. nice yeah the chop you know um, yeah the chop but also that little tap thing you're doing with the oh yeah oh yeah yeah a little side stick thing yeah yeah that's what you know like the drummers call it a side stick you hold the snare you hold one stick on the snare and then you hit the stick that's on the snare with the other stick, you get that that like kind of woodblock sound. Yeah. And uh, I've always liked that. That's a very light, kind of nice, um, easy thing to do. And uh, I do that a lot. It's, it's funny. Whatever works, you know, whatever. A lot of it is just figuring out a way to get out of the way. Violin is so much a solo instrument. When you hear it, your ear goes right to it. So how do you, how do you like defray that a little bit? How do you, uh, you know, open that out so that it's just suggesting a vibe, you know, rather than like everything that's supposed to be happening. That's part of my, my thing, too. 
We finish up with Daryl Plain with the group Fiddlers 4 that also features the noted Cajun fiddler Michael Doucet, Appalachian-style fiddler Bruce Molsky, and cellist Rashad Eggleston. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. Thank you.